six months that changed the world, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Lecture 5, Germany. By the middle of March 1919, the Paris Peace Conference had accomplished certain things. It had dealt with the League of Nations. It had drawn up the covenant of the League of Nations, and Woodrow Wilson, the American president, felt that that was very important. But it really had only begun to deal with one of its other major purposes in being there, and that was the German Treaty. Germany was by far the most powerful and most important of the nations that lost the First World War, and drawing up the German Treaty was a major task for the peace conference. We talked last time about the League of Nations and about the mood in Paris that, yes, a lot had been done by the middle of March 1919, but that a lot remained to be done. And I want to look now at that remaining agenda and the most important item on it, and that was the German Treaty. The German Peace Treaty, it was known as the Treaty of Versailles after the place it was signed, the Great Palace of Versailles just on the outskirts of Paris, remains the single most contentious topic from the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. It's something that people still talk about today. It is still seen widely as a very unjust, very unfair treaty which had a dreadful impact on history. The argument runs like this. Germany's treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, was too harsh. Germany lost too much territory. Germany was unfairly made to take the blame for the First World War. Germany had to pay far too much in war damages or reparations as they were known. And as a result of what was seen as a very unfair treaty, Germany moved in a more nationalistic direction. Hitler was able to get himself into power by attacking the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. And once Hitler got into power, then Germany and Europe moved down the path towards the Second World War. Now, in 1919, of course, most people on the Allied side didn't think like this. To begin with, they couldn't foresee the future. But in 1919, most people in Allied countries felt that Germany should be punished and should have fairly harsh terms. Allies opin Allied opinion held, largely, that Germany was responsible for starting the First World War. Woodrow Wilson shared this view. George Clemenceau shared this view. David Lloyd George shared this view. Allied leaders all condemned German militarism. They didn't necessarily condemn the German people themselves, but they certainly condemned what they saw as German militarism. The German army, the German mood of, of militarism, of enthusiasm for things military. Allied opinion condemned Germany's invasion of Belgium in 1914. Germany, after all, was one of the countries that had signed an agreement that Belgium should be a neutral country and had pledged to protect that neutrality. And so Germany had violated its own international undertakings when its troops had invaded Belgium. Germany had also attacked France. And so in 1919, the view was very much that Germany deserved to be punished. There was talk in Britain and elsewhere about how to punish those who were particularly responsible in Germany, such as Kaiser Wilhelm II and the chief generals in the German high command. It was only over the years that doubts began to grow about Germany's responsibility for starting the war. Did Germany really start it? Was it perhaps just an unfortunate series of accidents? Was it the fault, for example, of Britain for not saying that it would come into the war if a war started? Was it the fault of Russia for mobilizing on the common border between Austria, Hungary, and Germany? And as the doubts began to creep in, a debate started, which really has continued up to the present time. My own view is that I come down on one side of this debate. I should make it quite clear here. My own view is that the German peace terms weren't all that harsh, that Germany was not that badly treated, 
The Germans didn't like their treaty terms, but then people who lose wars usually don't like the terms they get. And it was not the responsibility of the Treaty of Versailles. And the Treaty of Versailles, the German treaty, was not responsible for starting the Second World War. Hitler had his ideas shaped long before the Treaty of Versailles was, was signed. He believed that the German people were superior people. He wanted to have that superior people dominate Europe. I think he would have moved in the direction he moved whatever peace terms Germany had got. Anyway, let me explain something of that debate so you can make up your own mind. To begin with, I think it's very important to understand that the German attitude towards the treaty was shaped very much by the attitudes that Germany itself and Germans brought to the end of the war, to the war itself, and to what was likely to happen to them in Paris. In Germany, as the Germans waited to see what their peace terms would be after the end of the war, certain beliefs about the war itself and about the ending of the war began to take hold. The first of these beliefs, and it's a very important one, is that Germany was not defeated militarily. Now, in fact, this is not true. German armies were defeated on the battlefield. The German armies broke in August 1918. The German high command was convinced that Germany couldn't fight on. The German generals went to the civilian government, which they had in effect kept in the dark, and suddenly said in September 1918, we can't fight on, things are in a very, very bad way, you have got to make a peace. And in fact, all the evidence was that Germany couldn't fight on. A number of generals in the field said they were short of equipment, the units were half strength, they couldn't get the soldiers they needed, they couldn't get the fuel they needed. At the end of September 1918, it was estimated that Germany probably had enough fuel for six weeks at the most, and then it was not going to be able to move. And so it is not true that Germany was never defeated on the battlefield. German armies most certainly were defeated on the battlefield. But what began to happen, and it was partly because of the way in which the war ended, was that the high command and its supporters began to argue that German troops had not, in fact, cra cracked. The German army moved home, marched home at the end of the war in good order. It was greeted by the new government, a new socialist government, and its president said, we greet you undefeated. And so right from the very beginning, right after the armistice, the German high command began to argue that it had never been properly defeated. The German army was home, it was intact. How could it have been defeated? And what the high command began to push as reasons for Germany asking for an armistice, was something which came to be known as the stab-in-the-back theory, that the German troops were ready to fight on, they could have fought on, but they were prevented from doing so by traitors at home. Who were those traitors? Well, the traitors were people who later on became targets of the Nazis. The traitors were the left, the communists, the socialists. The traitors were people like the Jews, who it was said were not properly German. And so this very pernicious myth, and it was a myth, began to grow up in Germany that the German army had never been defeated. Well, you can see where it would go from here. If the German army hasn't been defeated, then why on earth should Germany have to pay any, any penalty as if it were, in fact, a defeated nation? Now, true or not, and I would say it's not true um, that Germany was, 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 was not defeated, what people think is often as important as what actually happens. Anyway. That was one of the beliefs that Germany had not been properly defeated, that it had been stabbed in the back, or in other words, it had been badly treated by some traitors, began to grow up in Germany. 
And a lot of Germans were able to feel this, I think, because they never saw Allied troops in occupation. Because the Allies accepted Germany's armistice without moving their troops onto German soil, almost no Germans actually experienced an Allied occupation. The only bit of Germany that was really occupied was the bit of Germany west of the Rhine River, the Rhineland, and we'll be hearing about that bit of land again. The Rhineland had an occupation, but as far as most Germans knew, there was no Allied presence, and I think that made a difference. The second thing, or myth, I would argue, that began to grow up in Germany was that Germany had surrendered on the basis of Wilson's principles. The German government had appealed to President Wilson for an armistice. The German government had indeed said that it, that it accepted Wilson's 14 points. It had asked President Wilson to help them negotiate an armistice, and that when it had done so, when Germany had done so, essentially they had been expecting, and had perhaps even been promised, that any peace that came would be made on the basis of Wilson's principles. In other words, Germany would not suffer punitive measures, Germans would have the rights of self-determination as much as anyone else in Europe. For some Germans, that was actually an opportunity. If Germans all over Europe had the right of self-determination, then Germany might actually grow because there were a lot of Germans, probably six million, living in Austria. There were a lot of Germans living in what became Czechoslovakia, quite a lot of Germans living in what became Poland. If self-determination meant anything, well, maybe those Germans would actually join with Germany. A final thing that happened was that, again, not all Germans felt this, but a lot did. Since Germany was now a republic, in a sense, it was a new country. At the end of the war, the Kaiser left, he abdicated, and Germany was no longer a monarchy. It became a republic. And so what a lot of Germans argued, and in a way it's, it's understandable, was that they had got rid of the regime that had got them into trouble, that was responsible, if anyone was responsible for getting Germany into the war, the old regime was, they now had a new regime. In a sense, they had wiped the slate clean. A different Germany, it should be treated differently. And so these very important attitudes began to circulate in Germany from the time of the end of the war up until the time the Germans finally received their peace terms in May 1919. And all of this meant that when Germany actually received its terms, it was not, in fact, very well prepared or its public opinion wasn't very well prepared for the terms as they actually were. There was, as I mentioned, a fairly widespread assumption that Germany should pay. The Allies differed, however, on how this should be done. The French, who had suffered most from the hands of Germany had, and had most to suffer in the future, wanted to see a much smaller Germany. Indeed, some French would have been quite happy to see Germany broken up into its component parts. And you remember that Germany was a very new country it had only come together out of seven much smaller states in 1871. And so there were people in France who argued, break it up again. Clemenceau, the French prime minister, recognized that this simply could not happen. Neither the British or the Americans would go for it. In fact, Lloyd George said, and he was quite right, look, German nationalism before 1871, when Germany became a country, really was a very disruptive force in Europe. If we break Germany up again, we will simply have the same disruptive force. In other words, a smaller Germany broken into components would simply cause trouble until all those components came together again. And so breaking up Germany wasn't on. What some French then discussed, and Marshal Foch, the French chief general, the Generalissimo, advocated this, was detaching the Rhineland 
that bit that I mentioned of, of Germany that was west of the Rhine River, and either make it independent or turning it into a larger confederation with perhaps Belgium and the Netherlands. Again, Lloyd George did not go for this. He said, look, if you break away the Rhineland, which is clearly German, you will have the same trouble as you had when Germany took the two provinces of Alsace and Lorraine from France after 1871. Germany took away two French provinces. It caused trouble between France and Germany until the First World War broke out. If you take the Rhineland, you'll just be creating another Alsace-Lorraine, and so we won't go for it. Neither Britain nor the United States, therefore, would go for breaking Germany up into its parts or taking away the Rhineland. Clemenceau was not unreasonable. He recognized that probably in the long run, safety for France lay in building and maintaining the alliance with Britain and the United States, and so he was prepared to go along with the Allies if he could get some guarantee that Germany would not be a menace to France again. What he would have settled for, and what he eventually settled for, was a provision in the treaty that the Rhineland would not have German troops in it, and that there would be an Allied occupation for a certain number of years, up to 15 years. What that meant was that there would be a buffer between Germany and German troops and France. The Rhine River would lie between France and Germany, in effect, even though the Rhineland would continue to belong to Germany because Germany could not have troops in it, France would not have to worry about an immediate German threat. In the specific discussions of the German peace terms, there were a number of issues which came up over the months. The first really had to do with preventing Germany from being a threat again. And one of the ways of doing this, of course, was to deal with the Rhineland. That was already that, that I've already mentioned. Another way of preventing Germany from being a threat to France or to its other neighbors was disarmament in some form or other. And so the military men sat down and drew up military clauses for the German peace treaty. What they suggested was that Germany should have a small army of 100,000 men, and that was agreed. That Germany should not have an air force at all, that was also agreed. That Germany should not be able to have heavy equipment such as tanks, that was agreed, and that the German Navy could not have ships above a certain size and could not have certain other types of equipment like submarines. And so what the idea behind this was, was to try and reduce the power of what had been the most powerful army in Europe. It was promised, and this was something the Germans later on came to resent very much, it was promised that German disarmament, or the limitation on German armaments, would be part of a much more general disarmament supervised by the League of Nations. And in fact, this never came about. And so the Germans had, I think, a real reason for feeling that the peace treaty had singled them out, had made a promise of a general disarmament, which never in fact happened. Another issue came up was this whole issue of punishing those who were responsible for the war. And this is when you begin really to get the notion of crimes against humanity. There was a lot of talk about punishing people like the Kaiser, Lloyd George, like to irritate the British king. The British king was actually a cousin of the Kaiser's, didn't much like his cousin, but King George V didn't like talk of, of punishing crowned heads. And Lloyd George used to talk in various ways about what can we do with him. He said, let's take him out to the Atlantic and sink him. Let's have a trial. I know, said Lloyd George one day, let's send him to the Falkland Islands. 
and that was in fact not done. But there, there were various there's various discussion and talk about trying various generals, talk about trying naval officers, for example, whose ships had fired on boatloads of, of survivors from the sinkings of other ships. In the end, um, these the provisions for this were put in the treaty. In the end, they never amounted to all that much. Another issue which was much discussed in Paris, and of course, again, it had to do with trying to prevent Germany from being a menace to its neighbors, was making a smaller Germany. The British and the Americans would not go for taking the Rhineland away from Germany, but what they would go was for taking some other little bits of territory. Belgium, which had lost a great deal of its forest and whose mines had been ruined by the German occupation, got two very small pieces of territory which contained forest and some coal mines, known as Eupen and Malmedy, right along the Belgian border with Germany. And Denmark got a part of what had been the Duchy of Schleswig-Holstein, um, just on the border between Denmark and Germany. Another issue was what would happen to the coal mines in something called the Saar, S-A-A-R. The French put in a claim for these right close to the French border because, again, French mines had been largely ruined by the German occupation. Again, Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson would not go for actually taking the Saar land away from, from Germany and giving it to France. The people living in the Saar were very clearly German, and so this was against self-determination and, and also foolish. It would simply poison relations in Europe between France and Germany. So what was agreed was that the Saar area would be under the League of Nations for 15 years, and France would have access to coal from the Saar mines. At the end of the 15 years, there was to be a plebiscite supervised by the League of Nations. The French confidently felt that 15 years of French rule would make the people of the Saar recognize how much they wanted to be French. In fact, when the plebiscite was held, something I think like 90% of them decided they'd rather be German or remain German. Germany was also to lose considerable territory in the east on the borders with Poland. That, however, I'm going to discuss later on because it really is part of the settlement in Central Europe. The French, therefore were going to end up taking rather less than they had intended, certainly less than a lot of French people intended. Clemenceau, I think, gave way, partly because he really felt it was sensible. I mean, Clemenceau, in the long run, I think, recognized that Germany and France would probably have to get on. And there were people even more far-seeing than Clemenceau who said, look, one day, if only we could do it, we could have some sort of European common market where Germany and France work together. The young man called Jean Monnet, who was working for the French government at that period, who came up with a very, very interesting plan for this, didn't go anywhere much in 1919, but after the Second World War, Jean Monnet helped to lay the foundations for the European Union, which, of course, is centered around French and German cooperation. To persuade Clemenceau and the French to accept rather less than what France had wanted in the way of territory and, and disarmament and so on, Lloyd George and Wilson offered a guarantee to Clemenceau to persuade him to accept it, that Britain and the United States would come to the defense of France if attacked by Germany. This Clemenceau was terribly excited about. He, he, he got rather tearful and said, thank you, this is what I have been dreaming of, this will make me feel secure. Lloyd George, who always liked the grand gesture, said, don't worry, we'll be there instantly. And Clemenceau said, well, I'm not quite sure how you're going to do that. And Lloyd George said, we will build a tunnel under the channel, and so when you need us, we will simply come through the tunnel and pop up in France to defeat the Germans. Well, the tunnel was not going to be built for a great many years to come, and the guarantee didn't amount to much at the time either. In the end, what happened 
was the guarantee didn't go through Congress. Woodrow Wilson was unable to get congressional support for that. And so it fell down. The United States refused to support the guarantee. That left the British. And the French then turned to the British and said, okay, the Americans aren't going to support this guarantee, but what about you? And the British at that point said, no, sorry, the guarantee really only counted if the Americans were in on it. And so the French were going to be left feeling that they had actually backed down a lot on some of the terms they wanted for Germany. They had accepted less than what they wanted in return for the Anglo-American guarantee. And in the end, the Anglo-American guarantee hadn't materialized. And so what you were going to get as this whole question of the German settlement came up was terms being drawn up which the Germans were certainly going to feel too harsh, and that has a lot to do with the way the Germans approached the peace. And also, in the end, we're going to leave the French feeling both resentful and afraid. The French came out of the Paris Peace Conference in the final settlement feeling that they had been promised certain guarantees, notably the Anglo-American guarantee. They had not got that guarantee. They had settled for less than they wanted, and they still had over on their eastern boundary a very, very strong Germany. And what really worried the French, and they, they, they knew this, was that there were going to be fewer and fewer Frenchmen compared to German men. And what that meant was fewer and fewer French soldiers compared to German soldiers. The French knew that the French birth rate was going down. The German birth rate was remaining stable or going up. They also simply knew that there were fewer people around. So many men had been killed in the First World War that there was simply not going to be that many infants coming down the pipeline. And they knew that by about the middle of the 1930s, they were going to have what they called the hollow years, years when there simply weren't going to be that many potential French soldiers. And so these peace settlements, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles with Germany, which were designed, at least from the French point of view, to leave Germany less of a threat to France, did not satisfy the French, left the Germans feeling resentful, and we'll talk about some of the other things the Germans resented later on, but also left the French feeling resentful and afraid. And that was going to have a very, very important effect on interwar relations. The French were going to try and look for support against Germany on the other side of Germany. They were going to look over to some of the new nations or some of the old nations that were re-emerging in the center of Europe, and I'll be talking about those later on. They were going to look to Poland, now on the other side of Germany, Poland now between Germany and Russia, as a possible ally. They were going to look to the new nation of Czechoslovakia. They were going to look further south to the new nation of Yugoslavia. And this was going to make the Germans feel hemmed in. One of the, the, the tragic things, really, in this period is that the French rea were, were acting so they felt defensively in the 1920s and 1930s. The Germans saw it as a threat. And so the peace terms in 1919 are enormously important in shaping both German attitudes and French attitudes in the interwar years. Well, a lot of this is a long way off. A lot of it is, is, is down the road. But in Paris itself in 1919, some of the outlines of the problems were beginning to emerge. Marshal Foch, the great French general, in many ways a very great man, said, as he looked at the terms with Germany, he said, you know, it is not leaving us secure enough. He said, Rhineland is still German. One day they'll move troops back into the Rhineland, and that is precisely what Hitler was going to do. And he said they will attack us again, and again they will come through Belgium. They'll probably come through the Netherlands, and they'll sweep around, and this time there will be fewer of us, and it's not clear that we're going to be able to fight. And, of course, that is exactly what was going to happen when Germany attacked France in 1940. 
Marshal Foch also recognized, and I think he was right, that in the end the British were going to get tired of the French. The friendship between Britain and France was a very new one. They had really only become friends at the beginning of the 20th century. Before that, between Britain and France was a very, very long period of enmity, hostility, suspicion. You think of the fights around the world, the fight for Canada, the fight for India, the Napoleonic Wars, the fact that Britain and France on several occasions in the 19th century very nearly went to war. The friendship was new, and it was not really all that strong. Neither side really trusted each other. In Paris, the British were sure with good reason that the French were spying on them. In the Middle East, both Britain and France were, as we will see, vying for territory, competing with each other. And so when the British began to fail to support the French after 1919, when Britain began to withdraw again from involvement in European affairs, the French felt that it was not surprising. The Paris peace settlements, the German treaty, was not only going to leave the Germans feeling aggrieved, it was going to leave the French feeling aggrieved. And in the end, really, what the British came to feel is that the French were being unreasonable. Britain had other interests after 1919. Britain's interests had always really been in its empire, and the empire was still very large, still very important. And so increasingly after 1919, the British began withdrawing from Europe. It was in part traditional British policy. The British had only ever really got themselves involved in Europe when it looked like one nation was becoming too powerful. What the British cared about in Europe was a balance of power. As long as Europe was in balance, the British preferred to leave Europe on its own. It's a very famous headline in the Daily Telegraph, a British newspaper, in the 1930s, and the headline read, Fog in Channel, Continent Cut Off. And that really traditional British attitude towards the continent was beginning to reassert itself after 1919. And so when the French kept on saying to the British, look, the treaty isn't fair, we haven't got the guarantees we want, we aren't as safe as we thought we would be, we should have had the Rhineland, you, you made us give it up in return for your worthless guarantee with the Americans, the British basically got impatient. And what began to happen, and this leads me back to the debate I talked about at the beginning, the whole debate about whether the Treaty of Versailles in some way led directly to the Second World War, is that the British and other peoples around the world began to feel that maybe the Germans were right. Maybe the Germans were right to criticize the Treaty of Versailles. Maybe the terms had been too harsh, and perhaps the French were being unreasonable. And this questioning was reinforced by the fact that over the years, as the European archives began to be opened, and as people began to study the causes of the First World War, it really became less and less clear who had actually started it. If you ever go to a library, you will notice rows and rows and rows of books on the origins of the First World War. Very, very few on the origins of the Second World War. It's, it's just that much clearer. It's been estimated, I think the last estimate was that there's something like 35,000 books in English on the causes of the First World War, which suggests that people still aren't sure why it happened. What a lot of people began to conclude in the 1920s and 1930s, especially in the English-speaking countries, was that the war had maybe started by accident. And if the war started by accident, then Germany certainly was not responsible for it. Well, these are all questions which you may want to think about. But what we need to do in this course is turn next time to some of the new nations that were emerging. Because one of the legacies, unintended perhaps, of the peace settlements was that new nations appeared in the center of Europe. Some of them, alas, rather shaky. 
Other nations tried to be born and failed, and we'll also look at why that happened. After listening to Lecture 5, a student posed this question to Professor McMillan. Did the Allies have any alternative ways to end the war? Let's listen to the professor's response. The alternatives in 1919 for the Allies were not very palatable ones. They could have gone into Germany, but they didn't want to lose the troops, particularly the British and the French, who had always already lost huge numbers. If they had been prepared to go into Germany and take the losses that they would have suffered among their own troops... Yes, they could have occupied the whole of Germany. They could have forced a reconstruction of Germany. But I don't think the Allies had the will to do that. The alternative was to do more or less what they did, take a promising peace offer when they got it. At the time, they were very pleased with the armistice because it gave them control over German military forces. The Germans had to hand over most of their heavy equipment. And so from the Allied point of view, with the armistice, they basically got what they wanted. In retrospect, and the retrospect is always easy to do, you can look back and say, you know, Germany should have been made to suffer the effects of defeat. But at the time, no one really was prepared to pay the cost of that. What it meant, though, was that in a sense, the First World War, at least in Europe, was unfinished. Germany remained a very powerful nation. Yes, it lost its, a good deal of its military equipment, but you can replace that. It did have to have a small army, but in the end, that didn't really hurt them all that much. And the German industrial plant and German infrastructure was basically untouched by the war. Germany also was really in a stronger position strategically after the First World War than it had been before, because before the First World War, it had a common border with Russia, and that was something that Germany always feared. I mean, there were far more Russians than Germans, and they were worried about the rapid industrialization of Russia. They saw Russia as a menace, and there was Russia with a common border, because there was no Poland, of course, between them. They also had a big Austria-Hungary which was also a problem for Germany. Well, that had all gone after the First World War. Between 1918 and 1939, Germany was not only the single largest country west of, of Russia, the Soviet Union, in Europe, it also had on its eastern border really a series of weak countries. Poland wasn't strong, Czechoslovakia wasn't strong, Hungary, Austria, and so on weren't strong. And not only were they weak countries, they were countries that were quarreling with each other. And so Germany's strategic position after 1918, was really in many ways much better than it had been before 1914. This ends Lecture 5.